0: Journey into the Bible and explore its hidden text and rich wisdom. Join Adel Kazilski Mondays at 1 p.m. for the trip of a lifetime. Shalom, shalom. This is Adel Kazilski. This is 101.9. Chai FM, and you're with me for the next 45 minutes. And we're going to be studying Torah, as we always do on a Monday. Glad you joined if you would like to follow in. We are in the book of Exodus, and we are moseying our way, (laughs) even though I don't think the Egyptians are moseying our way through the plagues. We are going to be studying the third plague today, and that is the plague of lice. Anybody who would like to look in, and if you've got a chumash, if you've got the five books of Moses in front of you, it's chapter 8, verse 12 of the book of Exodus, Um. As always, what we are going to do is we are going to read inside, we are going to understand um, what the plague of lice was all about, we are going to understand why God brought particularly the plague of lice in the manner that he brought it, and then as always, we are going to go look at the psycho-spiritual side of things and learn what it is that we can learn about the plague of lice, because as we say always, and I guess I'll be saying it until we've left Egypt. Is that we've got the adage that in every generation one should see oneself as going out of Egypt every single day. And Egypt is a metaphor for our limitations, our boundaries, our challenges. Um, And we need to take the lessons from the Exodus and apply them to our daily lives so that we too can experience freedom. And you know, freedom is a a very, very big discussion always, you know, people trying to, to be free. Um, And it is only when we learn in Torah what freedom is all about are we able to then exercise things in a proper manner. So, you're welcome to join the conversation on 34519. That is our SMS line if you'd like to ask the question that way. Alternatively, you can telegram us on 061-895-1019. Now, for those that have just tuned in, um, and in understanding the plagues of Egypt, we understand that each plague took a week, and then there was a three-week respite. If um, a plague was warned, then they would give one week's warning, then the plague, one week to relax, a little hiatus of a week, and then they would start all over again. But there were certain plagues. Every third plague, there was no warning, and so we're on the third plague. Um, Pharaoh was warned about the plague of blood and the plague of frogs. Now, when we come into the plague of lice, there was absolutely no warning. There was just a command from God. But it is understood that it was four weeks from the date that the frogs um, started happening. Okay, chapter eight, verse twelve, Perikhet, pasuk Yud Bet. Hashem al Moshe. Again, God is commanding Moses. Emor al Aaron, you tell Aaron, Nete et Again, stretch forth your staff. It happened both for blood and for frogs. et and strike now the dust of the earth. the leKinim beKol eretz Mitzrayim, it will turn into lice in all the land of Egypt. So we're following a pattern here. This is the third time that it's happening that God is commanding Moses and telling Moses to command Aaron. And um, the same theme applies that in the first two instances, when there was blood and there was frogs, Moses was not allowed to strike the water because the water had saved his lives. And one of the adages in Judaism is that we ensure that we show uh, gratitude or anyone or anything that has done something good in our lives and because the Nile had saved um, Moshe's life, he wasn't allowed to do anything to it to disturb the gratitude that he should show towards it. Now similarly here, um, the action that had to be taken was that um, the ground had to be struck. Now why did Moshe not hit to bring the plague himself? But he was commanded to give it to Aharon to do. And the answer is simply as simple as that, is that he had, Aharon had to initiate the plague because Moshe had once benefited from the ground. When was that you may ask? Well, when he killed the Egyptian. Way back, um, he hid, he, he hid the Egyptian in the sand and the ground concealed his body. You can go back and look at that at chapter 12. I think it's around about verse 12. Um, and since He received benefit from the soil. Um, He was not the one to make it into something destructive. So that's why he told Aharon to do it. This just shows you the the, the degree to which one must go to in order to show gratitude. It's not when somebody does something huge to you, but a a thank you goes a very, very long way um, to anybody doing anything for you. Very, very, very important Important lesson. Okay, and they did this. et stretched out his hand the Matehu, with his staff. et He struck the dust of the earth. Batihi hakinim baadam The the lice came upon and attacked both man and animal. Then there was Um, lice all over the land B'chol Eretz Mitzrayim in the whole land of Egypt so the the dust of the earth turned into lice attacking beast and man Um, now the very first thing that we got to notice over here and this is why I painstakingly read the Hebrew while we are learning is because when you are looking at it in the you're looking at it in the original, um, you see a lot more nuance. By Ya'as they did so, okay, Um, and this means that um, it's in the plural, right? It doesn't say by Ya'as and he did so. By Ya'as they did so, which indicates that both Moshe and Aharon, Moses and Aaron, did exactly as God had instructed them to do. Moses said the proper words to Aaron, and Aaron executed the instructions. So what actually happened? Well, as soon as Aaron struck the ground um, with his staff, two things happened. First, every man and beast that was standing near Aaron was immediately covered with lice and vermin, It wasn't only lice, but it was all these horrible chochas, okay? And it looked as if, the Midrash tells us, it looked as if the people had lived in a garbage dump for a year. They were so immediately covered with so much chochas. And then what happened is that all the dust in Egypt, both near and far, all the way up to the borders of Egypt, was transformed into lice and gnats and those started um, attacking man and beast alike. Um, for anybody who is like, what's, what's the word when you don't like the the chochas? The, 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 I don't know which phobia name you've got to use, but they they this must have been absolutely horrific. And after the break, we're going to go and understand exactly what the, the slice and vermin did to them and why it was divine retribution, midah k'neged midah, One act for another act. For every, for every action, there is a reaction. And both good, good and not so good in this world. And really, the only thing we do have in our lives is freedom of choice. Hi FM, your station of choice since 2008. This is Adol Kazilski. We are talking about the plague of lice. And how vermin and gnats and all yucky things just descended on everybody, and it felt as everybody had lived in a, do- a garbage gum, uh, dump um, for for a year. How how awful, how disgusting. So the question we can ask is why? Why did God decide now on on lice? Well, there were certain reasons. there's certain um, reasons given in the midrash. The first is, is one of the punishments that the Egyptians would always give to the Jews is that they had to, they had to sweep the streets and the roads of dust. Now, understand, I'm sure that Egypt is a very dusty place and I'm sure that 3,000 years ago there was no such concept as tarred roads and an infrastructure. The streets were made of dust and as a menial and really, um, un, a a a a uh, job that they had to give that absolutely had no meaning for them um, to sweep the street of dust, to take a dusty road and sweep it. That was absolutely awful. So they, the Egyptians, were now stricken with the this plague because they had forced the Jews to sweep the streets and the roads of dust. So it was a fitting punishment. What happened now? All the dust in Egypt turned into lice. And as a result, they no longer could sweep the streets because they were unsweepable. Um, the Egyptians started getting a bit crazy. They tried to dig um, into the ground and turn like the soil, like so-so to speak to to smother the lice. But if they dug deep, what would they find? You got it. Lice. Some um, rabbis hold there were 14 uh, species of lice. Uh, others hold that there were 24 species of this vermin that was involved in this plague, and some grew even as large as hen's eggs. And we are going to talk about that in a little while. Just file that um, on, on 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 the side of your brain for two seconds. Another reason for this plague was that the Egyptians didn't allow the Israelites to bath. It was it was horrid. The Jewish people remained sweaty and filthy from their work-making bricks, and because of that, they themselves were subjected to lice and vermin, eating at their skins and making their life oh so horrid. Now the tables were turned, and it was the Egyptians who were plagued by lice. They the, the, These lice, these insects, attacked their faces. It got into their eyes. When they tried to wash them off by bathing in the sea, nothing happened. They just leached onto them. And bit them to bits. (laughs) Absolutely. As I'm speaking, I've got shudders down my spine. Ooh, Not my favorite. Now, what happens here? The, the, obviously, again, modus operandi was that Pharaoh called on the magicians, the Chautumim, the hieroglyphists, or the magicians, or the occultists, whatever you want to call them. And they tried to bring forth lice. Um, they tried to bring forth lice with their occult powers. They they couldn't. hakinim And the lice attacked man and beasts. So let's talk a little bit about these Egyptian wizards or magicians. Okay. What they did is they couldn't use the dust That was in Egypt because that was covered in lice. So they went and they collected dust from outside Egypt and they tried to do all the heebie-jeebies, all the abracadabra. They uh, conjugated up demons and they tried to coerce these demons to transfer the grains of dust into lice. But something happened now. And this started now changing the conversation in Egypt The demons were impotent here. Why? Because in black magic, not that I know too much about it, but I'm taught in the Midrash, that um, with black magic, uh, demons cannot act on something smaller than the size of a barley. So because it was dust and it was so small, even if they brought dust from outside the land of Egypt into Egypt, they couldn't convert that dust into lice. But I just told you a couple of minutes ago, and I told you to put it on the side of your of, of, of your brain, some of the vermin that were involved in this plague were quite large, right? They were as large, I told you, as hens' eggs. So if they were large enough as hens' eggs, then the magicians could have done something. Well, really what was happening is there were two separate miracles. The tiny grains of dust would turn into insects, And once they turned into those 24 or 14 species of insects, they miraculously grew to a large size. And so them calling on the demons, these Shadim, they were unable um, to do anything. And now you can ask the question as to why these demons, which they call Shadim in Hebrew, were unable to do this. And that's because when it comes to occult magic, wizardry, Um, The power to change nature comes from unclean forces. An unclean force in this world, we are told in the Kabbalah, cannot attach themselves to anything smaller than a barley corn. And therefore, the smallest measure that can impart uncleanness is the size of a barley corn. Therefore, you can call all the demons in the world because this was smaller than barley corn. That is... um, one of the reasons why they couldn't transform the dust into lice. But there was another reason. And now I'm going to take you on a trip of a lifetime. I'm going to tell you a story. And they will bring it back as to another reason why the wizards couldn't convert the dust into lice. So listen up at the story. It's quite a weird story, I've got to say. Um, it's found in the Gemara, and it's a story about a great Rabbi called Shimon ben Shetach. He lived in Israel around 70 before the Common Era, and he was a head of the Sanhedrin. Right. So this has happened in his time. One day, a very wicked tax collector, okay, a guy who was renowned for his his um, his ruthlessness in collecting tax was pretty wicked. He had a very bad name. He died in the city of Ashkelon. And at the same time, on the very same day, a great sa- great sage died as well. So there were two funerals. A very large crowd came to the sages' funeral. Not Shimon ben Shetach. it was in his time, but you'll see where he comes in. So a very large crowd came to the sage's funeral to accompany his body to the cemetery. The tax collector, on the other hand, only had his family present. And the funeral procession for the tax collector followed that of the sage at a distance along the road to the cemetery. So you have one massive crowd taking the venerated sage to his burial place and then nebach Behind them, some way down the road, this tax collector, this evil tax collector, just with a handful of family members. On their way, the funeral the funeral processions are attacked by armed bandits. And um, there was a scramble. They were trying to steal things from, from the participants, and all the participants ran away. Everybody ran away from both coffins, okay? Um, and there was a balagan, and the bandits did what they did. And the entire crowd dispersed. Only one of the sage's dedicated disciples was willing to risk his life and he remained behind. He wanted to guard the coffin, the casket of his beloved master. So now just imagine the sight. You've got the one student guarding the coffin of the sage and behind him there is the coffin of the tax collector with nobody. It took a while for things to settle, things seemed safe, people came back, they returned in order to complete the sage's funeral with the respect due to him. But to the student's honor, the people inadvertently went to the tax collector's coffin instead of that of the sage. So they ran away, they lost you know who's who and who was sitting on the road. And when the crowd re recalibrated and came back again, they actually hung around the tax collector's coffin instead of the sage. And he tried to call after them and tell them that they were doing the wrong thing to the wrong person, but they were too far away to hear from him, and he didn't want to show disrespect to the sage and go after them, so there was nothing he could do about it. A short time later, so off went the tax collector with everybody in town to have an honourable burial, and this student is just with <laughs> now the sage. The tax collector's family came, since there was nobody else to bury his master, the guy didn't say anything. He let them bring now the poor sage to the cemetery, thinking that it was the tax collector, um, and, uh, when, when, when they were at the cemetery, you could see that there was like huge, uh, uh, acknowledgements far down in the distance being given to the tax collector, who they thought it was, was a sage, and this poor sage now was getting a poor man's burial with nobody really attending to it. Anyway, this entire story finishes, and this poor student is very, very disturbed by what happened, and he was trying to think what, possibly, what possible sin could this great sage have committed to have undergone such a huge humiliation uh, before being put to the, his final rest. And even more so, there was a greater question of um, what merit did the tax that this wicked tax collector have to deserve such a great funeral? Like things were well, upside down. Anyway, it bothered this poor student a lot. And that night, he has a dream. And the sage appears to his student in a dream. And he says to his student, please, I don't want you to be concerned. I'm now in Ghanaden. I'm in paradise, and I have a very, very honorable position. And the tax collector, well, he's already in Ghanem. He's already in purgatory. And the hinge of the door is resting on the ear of the tax collector. So every time it's opened and closed, he experiences horrible torment. And God gives everybody what he deserves. So the student looks aghast. And the sage can see that the student has the question. So then, if you're in Ghanaian and the guy's in Gohanan, like, why did you deserve what you deserved? So he continued. He said, yes, I can see you're wondering why I experienced such humiliation at my funeral. I'll tell you. He says, there was one time in my life, like this guy was a Tzaddik, right? He didn't do anything wrong. He says, I committed one single misdeed. Once... I saw people humiliating a Torah scholar, and I didn't speak up for him. And so that was my punishment. I received the equal humiliation at my funeral, and that atoned for my sin. The tax collector, on the other hand, said the venerator sage, never did a good thing in his entire life, except for once. He once made a grand feast for the mayor and for the council, um and there happened uh, an emergency happened, and the mayor and the council couldn't attend. And even though he was really evil, this tax collector, he didn't want to throw out all the good food. So he made an announcement, sent an announcement into the town that the tax collector can invite that, 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 the, that the poor should be invited and let them finish it. So now he was repaid for his good deed by having a lavish funeral, and now he's sitting and getting his due punishment for all the evil he did. And the student said to his master, and how long will the tax collector have the door hinge in his ear? And here comes the strange answer. The great sage says, until Shimon ben Shetach is dead and buried. He disappeared. Now i are bringing back the story, right? Because this happened in the time of Shimon ben Shetach. The student was dumbfounded. Shimon ben Shetach was the head of the Sanhedrin. He was a leading sage. He was he was he was he was a saint. He was the saint in the in his time. Why would his death be linked to the tax collector's punishment? So um, he says to the sage, "Why is the honorable Rabbi Shimon ben Shetach linked to the 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 taxpayer?" So the sage said to him, you must realize that Shimon ben Shetah is partially to blame for the tax collector's immorality. He's also to blame for the immorality in Ashkelon in general. Okay, because he didn't sweep the place clean of negativity. More than that, said the sage to the student, there are 80 Jewish women in Ashkelon who practice black magic, and they engage in all sorts of disgusting rites. And Shimon ben Shetach made a vow once that when he became head of the Sanhedrin, he would rid the city of them. He never kept his vow. Well, the student's job was cut out for him. He woke up in the morning. The dream was very fresh in his mind. He hurried to Yerushalayim, and he goes and he finds Rabbi Shimon ben Shetach, and he relates the story to him. Rabbi Shimon ben Shetach listens. He realizes the message is in fact correct. And he says, 100%, I I need to make a plan to capture these 80 witches. So he has a huge yeshiva, right, of all students. From amongst his students, he chooses 80 of the tallest and strongest men. He tells each of them to get a jar and to put a cloak into the jar um, and seal it. So to take... The cloak, which is a piece of clothing, put it in the jar and seal it. And he waits for a stormy day. Very soon after a stormy day happens, it's raining so hard that it was impossible to go outdoors. He says to his disciples, I want you to take the cloaks that are in the waterproof jars, make sure they're very tight, and I want you to follow me to the cave. Because in this cave that he knew, the, the, all those 80 witches were there, okay? Um and what he wanted them to do is that when he would give them the sign, they would storm the cage, the, the cave, and each of them would grab a woman and they would lift her off her feet. And here's where you're gonna see it is connected to the story of the lice, right? Why? Because Black magic powers can only come from the earth. And it only can be done if the person who's affecting it is connected to the earth. So watch what happens. He leaves his disciples standing in the downpour and he, Shimon Ben-Cheta walks into the cave. And there he sees 80 very scary looking women. Who are you? What do you want? They were asked, that he asked. He says, I am a master warlock, and I have heard that you also practice magic, and I would like to compare notes with you. Oh, really? Not so fast, they said. Do you think we are going to tell our secrets to anyone who walks in? You need to prove to us your powers. So Shimon Ben Shaddach said, Well, you can see it's raining very, very hard outside. Can you hear the downpour? But with one word, with one abracadabra, I can produce 80 young men to entertain you, and their clothes will be perfectly dry. Aha! Said the witches. Now that's evidence that we would enjoy seeing. Do that, and then you'll be most welcome. And you're going to have to hang on to your seats, because this is 101.9. Chai FM. Hi one hundred and one point nine megahertz of life. So these young men, who were protecting themselves from the rain under an overhanging, that was by the mouth of the cave, they quickly opened the jars. They threw. They changed into those dry cloaks, and as soon as Shimon Ben Shidak gave them the signal. They came dancing into the caves, they grabbed each witch as, as, as if they were going to pull her into a dance, and before these women knew it, what, happened to them? They were on the shoulders of the young men. What happened? What happened now was that these witches were powerless, and they, <laughs> these guys, these, these uh, students took these women back into the town, they assembled a court of law, they passed sentence, and all, all 80 were immediately hung. And it was obviously a, a very big lesson to the people um, in the city that they should avoid such practices in the future. These witches, and this was not the end of the story, had many relatives, many sympathizers. They decided they would um, seek revenge against Shimon Ben Shettach. And what they did is they hatched a plan, and two carefully rehearsed witnesses appeared in court, and they testified against Shimon, Shimon Ben Shettach's son. They said he had committed a crime but incurred the death penalty. Um, and another court of law was, was, was uh, brought, brought about. The witnesses were very clear, clever. They withstood very careful examination if, uh, that is not, that's normally given in a capital case.
1: And the court had no other
0: choice but to sentence this young man to death. And as Shimon's son was being led to the execution, he said, If I am guilty, let my death atone for my sin. But if I am not, let it atone for any other sin I may have committed, but let the noose also be on the necks of my witnesses, because their sin will never be forgiven. While these guys got the script of their lives. The witnesses, when they heard those words, they realized, well, they shouldn't have done this in the first place. They went back to the court. They confessed that they had lied. Um, and that it was a plot to take revenge against Shimon ben And despite all of this, all, whether they protested or not, it didn't help because once testimony is duly accepted from a witness, he cannot retract it. So despite the retraction of the witnesses, the poor young man was put to death. A horrible ending to the story. The point of the story though was, is to see that anybody who practices Anything in the occult arts must stand on bare earth in order for his practices to be effective. And they disarmed all these witches by lifting them off the ground. And so one of the other reasons why the the magicians, the wizards in Egypt, couldn't convert the dust into life, number one, there was no dust, but even if they found other dust they couldn't, was because they 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 themselves needed to be in contact with the earth and there was no more earth to be in contact with because it was filled with lice and vermin. Okay? Um, so they they really, really struggled and they couldn't. And that's why the Torah repeats here the lice attacked man and beast alive. Because it was said earlier, right? So before the Egyptian wizards attempted to duplicate this feat, many Egyptians thought that the lice were not real, they were an illusion. But when the wizards were unable to make the lice, they then realized that the lice attacking man and beast were real. There are some opinions that were saying that the reason why it's said a little bit differently is that first the lice attacked man and beast, and then the, lice tur- the, the dust turned into lice. Because if it happened the other way, if all the dust had immediately turned into lice, the wizards would have been able to argue that the only reason they could not produce lice was because they had no Egyptian dust to work for. So God made sure that the lice first attacked man and beast, and then He changed the dust in Egypt into lice. What happened with the Jews? Well, they, they were, they were great. They were fine. Because the, the soil in Goshen, where the Israelites had lived, okay, while the dust had turned into lice, um, the, that land had been worked and plowed, okay, and th- anything that was virgin soil remained free of vermin. So everywhere it crawled, um, except in the land of Goshen, and it was awful. It said they were so covered that their their elbows became stiff. Um, they were bitten by the vermin. They couldn't even scratch themselves. And this also was meta connected meta against um, them. It was their punishment for working the Jewish people so incessantly that they didn't even have the opportunity to relieve their itching. So they, they couldn't find relief, and all they did was eventually get up and try scratch themselves against a tree or a wall to try find some relief, and that just tore their skin and made them uh, bleed profusely. This is verse 15. The, the magician said to Paro, This is the finger of God. And here we go again. Paro did not listen to them, and he hardened his heart. So now we've got the Egyptians being transformed into nothing, right? First, if you go look at, at chapter 7, verses 11 and and 22, they're called... The, the the magicians of Egypt, they were the most important people there, okay? They um, were then brought down, that was in the first plague. Then in the second plague, They were the Egyptians that did this with their occult arts. So they were no longer the Egyptians of Egypt, they just had occult powers that were recognized. And now if you look at the word Khartoumim, these wizards, magicians, you will see that there is a Yud missing in there, a final Yud which indicates that they lost even more of their status and more of their power. And when they use the, the uh, idea that etzba, mm-hmm. etzba, finger, is an acronym for Ain Sarech Bidika Od, there is no need for further examination. That There is no question that this was something way beyond them, and this was coming from a higher party, which they wanted to know and call God. So that really was the the um, plague of lice. It lasted for a week and then disappeared. It came unannounced and it ran its course for seven days. Now before we conclude, we are going to look at the psycho-spiritual side of it. What does lice mean in our life? Where do we see lice in our life? And how can we apply it to us? Okay? Lice is um is a sign of submission in life. Now you can have or you the attribute of submission, like every attribute in the soul, everything that we do can either be productive or destructive. Well, let's talk on the good side first. If you forever remain a humble student of life's lessons then people will say you have the noblest character trait an individual can possess, right? If you're able to surrender your ego to a higher truth that is the foundation for all spiritual growth, if you have the capacity to confess an error or a wrongdoing, then you're using the act of submission as something positive. And that's why we always say in our dubbing, may my soul be like dust." What are we expressing there? It's our wish that we remain humble in the presence of life's mysteries. That is healthy humility and healthy submission. How can submission be unhealthy? After the break. This is 101.9. Hi FM. Hi FM. 101.9 megahertz of life. Okay, so we understand healthy submission. What is destructive Egyptian submission? That's when one walks around with a false humility. Okay, what do I mean by that? You can have a bad attitude about yourself that crushes your spirit and that you actually have no zest for life. You know, when when one submits in such a way when one thinks of, of himself as a worthless creature who doesn't matter, when one's perception of the self is, I'm useless, that, that useless, and I'm going to put it in inverted commas, dust, develops into lice, and all it will do to you is demoralize you and debase your life even more. So just like the dust turned to lice of Egypt, a negative form of humility will suck out your blood. It will deprive you of your vitality and of your energy flow. And if you look at it today, you ask, well, where is the plague of lice? Allow me to tell you that I think we can call it in modern words, depression. You know what Rabbi Aaron of Carden said? Depression is not a sin. Yet what depression does, no sin can do. I'm going to leave you with that thought. Have a wonderful week ahead. This is 101.9 High FM.